see you today. I'd like to show you something this morning. Just take a minute and uh, read this, if you will. It's something very core to us here at Fellowship of Faith. Make it through. It's because I personally believe that so deeply and because we want to see that be a hallmark of of what our church is here together that we come to an amazing topic today. Several weeks ago, we had a live text and event where people were invited to text any question they had on God, the Bible, theology, and how it intersects with life in, and I would do my best to field it on the spot. These last couple of weeks since that event, what I've been doing is I've been taking collections of questions that, that, that came in in such volume, we just did not have time to get to. And so that brings us to the topic today. And because of believing this so seriously and deeply and thinking this is what church should be about, what we're going to do today is talk about this topic that is so central to life and our identity a topic on which God has so much to say and, uh, and try to respond to just some of the amazing questions that came in that day a few weeks ago on this, this topic of sex. So with that being said, let's jump on in, all right? Now, before I get to the questions uh, specifically, I feel like I need to give a, a, a starting platform and it's this question that I've rhetorically asked right here. What does God think about sex? Because until we answer this question, we can't really move in to all of these specific questions that came up that we'll get to momentarily. So here's the answer. What does God think about sex? He thinks it's good. He thinks it's amazing. He thinks it's incredible. Because God is not capable of creating anything less. There has been an unfortunate stream throughout church history where, where the church at times has been responsible for, for demonizing sex as something sinful. Um, and, and guys, just straight up, nothing could be farther from the biblical revelation or truth. I mean, think about this. Um, we use a number of different names to talk about God, right? Descriptions, if you will. Father is one. The Lord's Prayer, how does it start? Our Father. Do you realize one of the predominant ways that that, that God will describe himself and describe the nature of the relationship that he wants with us is actually that of lover? I mean, think about praying, God, you're my lover. Think about thinking of God as your lover. It's kind of like off-putting on the surface, isn't it? But it's through sexual imagery and sexual language that God will often express the the intensity and the passion and the commitment and the togetherness and and just the hunger that he wants uh, his people to have for him and he wants and that he has for his people. I mean, think about this. The second coming of Christ is described in terms of consummation, all right? I mean, it gives a whole new spin on Jesus coming again, doesn't it? The hunger and the yearning for two lovers waiting for that day when finally, ah, 
That's what the second coming is all about. I mean, you don't have to read further than, than an entire book of the Bible called Song of Songs or Song of Solomon to see um, the imagery that, 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 that the writer will use about a man and a woman on their wedding night with the hunger and the passion and the desire, but also the fears and the insecurities and the questions they have as they come together for the first time. And God says, this is a picture of, of the relationship that I want with you. So getting this groundwork of this amazing thing that God has created that is good and powerful and physical and spiritual, that binds people together while simultaneously driving and generating love and passion and commitment, it has to overshadow everything we think about in relation to this thing that uh, God has made called sex. So with that being said, let's jump into... um, Eight questions that came our way a few weeks ago, and uh, let's have at it. All right, question number one. Is sex outside of marriage sinful? Scripture reference, please. Yeah, it is, but I can't give you one. All right? And the reason I can't give you one is because you're not going to find one. You're not going to find a passage that you can open up to and says, thou shalt not have sex before marriage, all right? Because the Bible just often doesn't function that way. It isn't meant to be this comprehensive rule book of life, despite what ideas you bring to it or what people have told you that answer every question of sin that might possibly arise. It's derivative, actually. It's derivative from things like these, and I'll just give you a taste of the hundreds of passages of Scripture where where the idea of sex being something to be shared within a marriage confine comes to play. Here it is in the beginning. God creates it, all right? He says in Genesis 2, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. From the beginning, you see God orchestrating sex within the idea of marriage. It goes on from there. You can look at other references in the Old Testament. Here's one. Uh, It's part of a legal code that says if a man seduces a virgin um, who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, uh, okay, what's the ramification? Yeah, that, that ain't cool. Pay the bride price and take her as your wife. All right, so you see that there's this idea that that sex outside of marriage is not the way God wants it to be. And the New Testament will often couch this in in more general terms of things like morality and purity. Let me show you a few. Hebrews says marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. That, 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 preserving the the amazing sanctity and power of what's supposed to be expressed between husband and wife is so good and so powerful that don't do anything to taint it or screw it up. Likewise, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. What does that mean? With absolute purity. Okay, would would you sleep with your sister? Ew, right? Yeah, you get the idea here of this passage. And, uh, you know, and we can go on um, about ways that Jesus will talk about sexual immorality as being something beyond adultery. We can talk about um, how Paul will encourage people to stay pure. So you get this idea of how this thing that is so powerful and wonderful called sex is designed by God for those in a committed relationship called marriage. Question two. Okay, so then is it sinful to live with a boyfriend or girlfriend 
before marriage. And then what about sex before marriage? Of course, again, in biblical reference, please. You know, the issue really isn't living together. The issue is sex. You know, living together is not what God is concerned with. And I think there's a great hypocrisy that exists in the church today where people who live together are so immediately condemned while people who don't live together but are sleeping together all the time are just kind of under the radar. I think it's important we keep the main issue the main issue. Now, does that mean I'm condoning living together with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you're married? No. Have I known cases where it made sense? Straight up? Yeah. And I'm not getting into all the benefits or all the, uh, the reasons right now. But if you're approaching it for like financial benefit, as a test case to marriage, is this going to work out before you know, I say I do? You know, things like that. It, you know what it reminds me of? I, I graduated from college in December. Um, anyone do that, by the way? It's kind of a different world when you graduate mid-semester. And where I went to school, it was different because I remember we had the graduation ceremony, but I still had to take final exams that week. All right, what does that do to your graduation ceremony? Really kind of robs something from it, doesn't it? I kind of think about that in the same way. Question three, so what is marriage? That's how I read this one. Were Adam and Eve married? Because the question is, if, if sex is supposed to be enjoyed within the, the relationship called marriage, what actually makes people married? Now, it's easy to kind of just kick back and go, well, yeah, you get a marriage certificate, you rent a hall, you have a big party, and you get a white dress. You know, I mean, you're married, right? Is that really what marriage is? Adam and Eve didn't do anything like that. People throughout biblical history didn't do anything like that. People through most of human history didn't do anything like that. So I'd like to talk briefly about what this thing called marriage is, and from that maybe bring insight into Adam and Eve. Short answer, yes. Yes, they were. See, if marriage for you is about getting a legal document and going through all the cultural trappings that exist today, you're not quite fully honed in and 100% on. Marriage at its fundamental core is this, a pledge of commitment. It's a pledge of lifelong commitment from a guy looking at a girl saying, I choose you to be my wife. I take you to be my wife. From this day forward till death do us part, to be faithful to you and all of its array. You can word it any way you want, but that's the heartbeat. And it's a woman looking back at a guy going, you know what, and then I choose you. I commit my life to you. I give my life to you until death do us part to be faithful to you in all its array. To which some of you might now be saying, well, I do feel that towards my girlfriend or boyfriend. Maybe you're even here and you're saying, I have even expressed that or articulated that in some kind of way to my boyfriend or my girlfriend. But it's more than that. Because at its core, it's this vow, but it's this vow or this commitment in a very specific way. It is the commitment made with accountability. And not just accountability to each other, but accountability to an authority 
to which you have to answer. And this is the key difference. Otherwise, every guy that tried to get a girl in bed going, I love you, baby, really, I do, and I'll be with you forever would be marriage, wouldn't it? It's commitment with accountability to authority, the authorities that God has placed. So in this day and age, it may be the government authorities to which we answer. In biblical days, they didn't have government as we think of. They had clans, tribes, families. And the father would often be the head of a family who would then answer to a father who would be the head of a tribe. And, 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 and all of your, your legal actions were in relation to him. You didn't have police force roaming around. You didn't have courts in the way that we do or to the degree that we do today. So let me ask you, if you're looking for another authority than a piece of paper or documentation by the government, are you willing to place your father or mother in complete authority over your life? If not, don't use that as a bailout for marriage. For years, it's been church. For centuries, the church acted as an authority. And in certain traditions, it still puts itself that way today, that if you don't get married in a certain church, are you truly married? But again, the way that people church hop today, the level of commitment people have to church, or the amount of accountability people will tolerate from a church today means it's no authority in anyone's life, so it doesn't work either. So what authorities are there truly in your life? Well, today in many ways, government for Adam and Eve, I mean, let's face it, it was them, right? So it was God. Marriage is about commitment within the context of accountability to authority. And within that, sex being wonderfully embraced and enjoyed and, and celebrated as God intended. Number four. All right, let's go to the other end of the marriage equation. So do you think it's a sin to divorce without infidelity or the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse? By the way, this question is quoting two very specific um, examples given in the Bible of why someone is able to divorce. But what about like, other things that aren't mentioned, like verbal abuse, physical abuse, lack of kindness, care, love? It's fascinating. Jesus was actually um, once asked a question somewhat similar to this. Let me show it to you. Um, this religious group, Pharisees, who prided themselves on knowing the things of God and, and, and encapsulating his wisdom of how to interpret it, once came to Jesus and they asked this question. They said, okay, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, it might feel a bit extreme the way it's put, doesn't it? But they're actually entering into a question that was circulating of the day. But I think the question is close enough to whoever asked our question that it pertains. Is it lawful or when is it lawful to divorce your husband or wife? And I love how Jesus answers this one because he has this, you ever notice this about him? He has this very uncanny way of always answering a question with a question or taking it down a path that you didn't think was offered there to begin with. And he comes back and he says this, wait a minute, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female 
and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Do you know what that kind of says to me in the context of the question? Don't ask under what conditions you can get a divorce. Ask, how can I revive my marriage Shift the question from wondering when divorce is okay to what God really desires for marriage to be alive and whole and good and saved and cherished and embraced. Because fundamentally, if you don't start there, there's something off to begin with. Now, with that being said, some of you here today are in relationships where you are just getting your head kicked in. Some of you literally and some of you metaphorically. There are some of you here today in which your spouse has put him or herself on a path of self-destruction and everyone who gets into their blast radius is getting shrapnel as well. Surprisingly, when you read the Bible, it has less to say on divorce than it does on remarriage. See, if you were to finish this passage in Matthew 19, and you can look this up in your own time, what will happen is that the Pharisees will push back and go, wait a minute, but, but Moses commanded that we could give a divorce under X circumstances, to which Jesus replied, you know, I know he did, but God gave you that as an out. He gave you that as Jesus would say, because your hearts are hard, because sin exists in this world, and sometimes divorce needs to be a reality because it is the lesser of two evils. Sometimes it's even the right thing to do for your own protection or for the protection of those in your family that you love. Sometimes, unfortunately, it takes something like divorce to show someone who's become a rabid addict or abusive or maybe other circumstances as well, that sin is not going to be tolerated and an amputation is what's necessary to save. Guys, just like with the sex before marriage, God does not lay out in his word every specific instance in which things function and operate. And I want to encourage you that if you're here today and you're divorced or if you're contemplating it and you're really wrestling at a deep fundamental level with very serious things, that God is there in the midst of it and there is provision. There is openness in certain degrees, but I would encourage you, before you take that leap, talk to someone. Not only someone that you trust, but someone who can be objective with you and ask you the hard questions and someone who you respect spiritually whose mind is rooted in God's word and can bring wisdom to your situation. Next question. Can you be a homosexual and be a Christian acting on the behavior? Uh, Yeah, but it's inconsistent. The same way you can be a Christian who's greedy and is consumed with gathering wealth. The same way you can be a Christian who has compulsions and you enslave yourself to various things in this world, drugs or the bottle or whatever else it might be, and still be a follower of Christ. Yeah, because being a Christian is not about being morally correct, but that's what God calls us to. That's what God desires. And if you're here today and you're struggling with homosexuality 
and you're wondering, can God love someone like me? Can I be a Christian? Am I forgiven? Yeah, you better believe it. But from there, let me take you to a follow-up that came in. So then, is the only way to be a righteous Christian homosexual to be celibate? You know, let me frame it like this. Do you realize that God's desire for you is the same, whether you are hetero or homosexual? There is no distinction there with him. His call to you is the same. It's holiness. Whether we are heterosexual or homosexual in our inclinations or leanings, God is calling us to the same thing of holiness with him. You know, one of the hardest things Jesus ever says in the Bible, at least hard not to understand, but if you take it seriously, is this line right here. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Which means following God in this world will cost you. It'll cost you things that you want. It'll cost you things that you enjoy. At times it will cost you things that are deep and meaningful to you because God calls us to that path and it asks the question, it begs the question, doesn't it? Why do it? Well, it's because believers and followers of Christ have come to really believe that this next line is absolutely true. That whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Jesus will save it. That the things that we sacrifice in this world do not compare to the glory and joy and abundance of what God has in store in his kingdom to come. And it might not, it might not make sense, and it might be hard, but God invites us to trust him to trust him that it's true. Whatever it is you're here struggling with today, not just in the realm of sex, embrace Christ's call of holiness for you. Question seven. In your personal and biblical opinion, is being gay wrong? Does the Bible say being gay is wrong? I want to reframe this one a little bit, and I want to ask you a few questions here this morning. Is being driven wrong? Is being disciplined wrong? How about free-spirited? Is being free-spirited wrong? I mean, all of these things at some fundamental level are good, right? They express personality and and they express the differences of how God has made us and how we've shaped and, and give us mere images of God. But here's the thing. Do you notice that with all of those examples that I've just given, they can be distorted, Find someone who's driven, that gets too obsessed with being driven, that gets putting being driven first in their life, or lets being driven drive them, and suddenly they're trampling everyone in their path, right? It's like they took something that was good and productive, but perverted it, okay? The same with being free-spirited, right? The joy and the spontaneity and, and, and the laughter that comes from his free-spirited human being, but someone who lets it crowd out everything in their life, it suddenly starts to distort things. And things like responsibility and self-control that are also important in this world pale in comparison. You know, when it comes to these questions like this, I think of the same thing. God has made sex good. But what sin does is it comes along And it shifts it, turns it, it distorts it, 
it fixates on certain things or, or starts to hunger in certain ways. And I think that when the Bible describes homosexual inclination or tendency, it speaks about it in these same terms. That sexuality at its core is something good, but all of us have propensity to twisting it or latching on to things with it that God never intended. And so to give you some insight into how this plays out, because it's a good and deep and, and complex question that goes beyond a simple yes or no, despite what many people think or have to say, is to start unpacking what does it actually mean to be gay. See, one of the problems that I have in our hyper-sexualized culture today is, is as I've met people, especially younger generation people, who, who start to get this idea that any kind of same-sex attraction means I am gay. Go with me on this. Is it good and God-honoring and pleasing to have strong affection for someone of the same sex? To have commitment? To have a desire? And I'm not talking sexually right there, just a base desire. Of course it is. It's called friendship. And in our culture where we've turned everything into sex, it's gotten forgotten. You know, the Bible will describe same-sex relationships sometimes even in terms of soulmate. Do you realize that? Here's an example of a, a guy you might know. His name is David. He's called a man after God's own heart. It's a story about him and, and, his, and his soulmate, Jonathan. Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. I mean, is that kind of something like marriage to you? I'm not telling you that David and Jonathan were married. I'm not telling you that they were having sex. I'm not telling you that they wanted to have sex. There's nothing homoerotic here. That's 21st century thinking. And sometimes the expression of it as well. Check this one out. David got up and, and he went down and bowed before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. And what did they do? They kissed each other and they wept together. I was talking to Mark Chaffee, our, our worship director here. And he was telling me about stories about how when they would go to India to visit his mother-in-law who's doing mission work, you would see like guys hanging out and, 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 and guys who were friends with no sexual tension or, or, or inclinations at all, touching each other and holding each other and arm in arm and things like this. You come here to the States, it's like, man, I want to do that. I want to have that. You must be gay. Really? It's really easy to take our cultural assumptions about what it means to be gay and transfer them or translate them into something sexual when they're not. Now, with that being said, if you're looking at some scripture references to the desire of women to have sex together, of men to have sex together, you can check out these. And it'll speak clearly how, how God will say, this is not my way. This is not my intention. This is different from that which I intended or created. And if you're struggling with it here today, I could not recommend a beginning website any more than this one right here, ChristopherYuan.com. He's a, he's a man who was a practicing homosexual who found Christ and embraced the path of denying himself and, and processes out in just amazing ways of what it means to be a gay Christian man who's devoted to following Jesus in this world. I encourage you, check it out. Now, questions eight and nine... I didn't really know what else to put these, but I figured marriage, sex, kids often come as a result. It fits, so 
bear with me. What do you think God would say about abortion? And the second question was very just bizarre, but I'm so glad you asked it. Why in the Christian faith is abortion wrong? Isn't the idea of more than one soul and one's body considered possession? I got to tell you, I have never heard uh, about the, <laughs> the abortion debate in those terms before. All right? What would God say about abortion? I think he would say this. Unless a life hangs in the balance, don't do it. And here's the reason why. Fundamental to the entire stream of the Bible is that you are amazing. You are amazing because God created you. And when he created you, he didn't just make another animal to roam the planet. He didn't just bring another collection of chemistry and cells together. That he invested something in you that, that goes beyond that, there I say, is even supernatural. That at a fundamental level, being human is so profound and so incredible that it can only be described in, in, in biblical-sounding words like sacred, because no other word does justice. And if human life is sacred like that with dignity, any time a human life is taken or ended, it's a travesty. So don't do it. Now, one's soul and one's body being considered possession, no. No, no, no Jewish or Christian thinker have ever thought that, that pregnant women are possessed. However, I sometimes have thought that. Um, <laughs> and you have too, apparently. <laughs> possession is about control, domination, a personality from outside of you coming and dominating and controlling you from within inside of you. It sounds like too many marriages, you know, doesn't it? Sadly, isn't perhaps there a lesson there? Now, this question wasn't asked, but the struggle I had going through today, and, and the way I want to wrap this up, is if you've looked at these nine questions, they all seem to be about what I can't do, what I can't do, what I can't do, which seems to totally debase this incredible thing that God created called sex into ways that, that it was never intended to be uh, obsessed with, shall we say. However, now I want to speak on the other end of it because you know what? I know, guys, there's some of you here today that are divorced and you've remarried another. There's some of you here today who have had an abortion. There's some of you here today who have had sex with someone who is not your husband or your wife while you were married, before you were married. There are those of you here today that are wrestling deeply with same-sex attraction or maybe experimenting or maybe have had a same-sex sexual relationship. All of these questions and the thing of holiness that God calls us to in the specific plan, you realize very quickly you realize very quickly how far, how far all of us fall short of God's way. I mean, I think about what, what Jesus says in some of the most fundamental ways. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if anyone even looks at another woman lustfully, he has committed adultery in his heart. Don't sexual sins get all of us? All of us at some level have something to repent for. And what's amazing about this God who made this thing as amazing called sex is that he speaks to you right now and your sexual sin. And he says, I love you. I love you and I want you as a lover. 
I want you with that level of hunger and passion and desire. I yearn for you. I dream about you. I spend my nights writing your name on my notebook again and again and again and again. I dream about the day you will text, and I hope that you'll go out with me. And I pray and dream that that will blossom into something, and I yearn for the day that we become one. No matter what your sexual sin, that's what God is saying to you. And the amazing thing about God is his grace and his forgiveness is limitless. So come to him and embrace it. Don't be afraid. Don't come to him as someone, I'm tainted. He won't want me. I've been used. He can't love me. I've done things that I'm ashamed of. If he knew, he would reject me. That is not the God who calls himself your lover. Some of the most powerful sexual stories of the Bible are descriptions of God taking an adulterous people that have cheated on him in every perverse and disgusting and debased kind of way and God pursuing them and saying, I want to reclaim you as my bride and make you spotless and clean because that's what God does, isn't it? And that's why we're here, isn't it? Because that's who God is. Nine questions that were submitted on sex as springboards, hopefully, to the God who is deeper and greater and more wonderful and compassionate than we can imagine. Because I want to invite you to rise. I'm going to invite the band to come forward. And I want to invite you here today to do something. Have you ever cheated on your spouse? Maybe not just sex, but, but in some way have done something that you feel like you've betrayed a trust, uh, or to a boyfriend or a girlfriend, for that matter. And you know that feeling that comes where it's like you'd rather die than come clean, but you, but you know that if you don't come clean, it's worse by far, and, and, and the feeling of having something between you is worse than a coming in the... You know the feeling I mean here today, right? I think it's so easy with sin to treat God that way. Sometimes we come to a place and we know that we've betrayed a trust, that we're not according to his desires. And the tendency is to run away, to hide, to live in a state of self-imposed rejection. I want to invite you this morning to just take a moment and close your eyes and let's come to God together. Whatever way you've sinned, whatever way you've betrayed, whatever way you've become tainted, Come to him today. Be honest about it. Confess it and just say, God, I'm sorry. Bring it to him. And if I can be so bold, I would like you to hear God speaking to you through my voice here today. I love you. I forgive you. I miss you. I want you. I will make you as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, pure and clean and holy. Come to my embrace.